0: Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you guys. I just I love worshiping with other churches. I love at our church when we have guest preachers. Dan's been one of them. Some of our favorite Sundays as a pastor it just feels very New Testamenty, um, and uh, even some other connections. Danica's uh, parents were part of our small group at Grace Church for a number of years. Uh, Phil's brother Dan is a member at our church, so I just love being here. It's really good good to be with you guys, and really grateful for the opportunity. Uh, to do it well last year we hosted our first ever thanksgiving dinner at our church a night of thanksgiving we called it and it was the sunday right before thanksgiving and that night a family came late they came kind of into the dinner looking a little disheveled and distraught really kind of had a look of, of terror on their face and so i just asked them like how, how you guys doing you, you doing okay and and they told me someone just drove a car through the Waukesha Christmas Parade. We were there. We had to run to our car. We came right, we came right here after that. And without knowing any details uh, that night, of course, I just I, I kind of did the best I could. I didn't know exactly what they had been through. I just said, "I'm, I'm so sorry," and did the best that I could. But then when I went home, I, I pulled out my phone to check the news, and when I had saw what happened, like, like many of you, I'm sure I was just Devastated. I was shocked. Uh, I had no clue the scope of what they had just experienced that night, uh, and for the next couple of days, any time I read or watched a a video or read an article about this, I, I noticed I was kind of holding my breath, anticipating one specific detail, and that was: Did any children die? I didn't put much thought into it at the time or stopped to consider why that particular detail was so important to me but in hindsight I think it's because of course the idea of anyone suffering in this way is terrible and it's tragic but the idea of a child being brutalized at a Christmas parade is just unthinkable in a whole different way. Eventually I saw a press conference in which the chief of police listed the names of the victims and their ages. Uh, and I held my breath again as, as I heard him say Virginia Sorensen, 79. Leanna Owen, 71. Tamara Durand, 52. Jane Coolidge, 52. And Wilhelm Hospel, 81. That day, uh, while of course I was grieved for each person and their loved ones, again, that day, I also had a st- bit of a strange sense of relief for this anxiety that I had about children. No no children were killed, thank God. But then, a day or two later, news broke that Jackson Sparks had died as a result of his injuries. He was eight years old. And when I heard that, my heart just sunk. Uh, it, It put this tragedy on a whole different level for me. There, there is something so pure and so good about children being well cared for. And at the same time, there is something so especially evil about them being violently harmed. Our hearts are broken still for, for every family impacted, but, but especially I, I think for the Sparks family lost, such a vibrant little boy. Of course, we know this child we celebrate at Christmas will grow up to be brutally executed. But for some reason, we often manage to keep the wonders of Christmas altogether separate from the horrors of the cross. And yet, there is something so profound about this simple truth that the cross is, in many ways, the reason that Christ was born. In Isaiah 61, Isaiah foretold of a coming servant king who would preach good news to the poor and essentially just reverse all of our bad news. This is a very well-known and common text in ancient Israel. Then there's also this story in Luke chapter 4. So if you actually want to turn to Luke chapter 4, just kind of keep your finger in Luke chapter 4. We'll get there. There's There's a story there in which Jesus claims to be this servant king uh, from Isaiah chapter 61, this one who would reverse all of our bad news. Uh, and he stood up in this Jewish synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, and he read this prophecy from Isaiah 61. And then he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he sat down. <laughs> That's quite a mic drop. This morning, uh, we're we're going to look at a different prophecy from Isaiah, but this different prophecy is about the same servant king. And what we're going to see is that in order to reverse our bad news, he is going to live through some very, very bad news himself. It turns out Isaiah's servant king will be a suffering servant king. He will be despised and rejected. We're going to see that in Isaiah 53. Then we're going to fast forward again to this story that I just mentioned in Luke's gospel. The same synagogue, that very same day in Nazareth, to see the servant king's suffering begin as Jesus' fellow Nazareans despise and reject him even that day. So again, we're we're basically going to be in two texts. Isaiah 53, we're going to see the despised and rejected child promised to us. In Luke chapter 4, we're going to see the despised and rejected child provided for us. I'm going to try and connect these dots. But as we get started, I want you to have this image seared in your mind throughout the entirety of the sermon. I want you to picture Christ born in a quiet little unassuming manger, cooing and crying uh, on the morning of his birth, just destined to be despised and rejected. And for what? For what? The answer to that question is essential to grasping the true meaning of what Christmas is really all about. And and so first, let's see this despised and rejected child promised to us far in the distant past in Isaiah 53, Uh, So first, Isaiah, it's the longest Old Testament prophetic book that there is. And about halfway through the book, Isaiah's prophecy begins to narrow in on this one messianic figure whom he calls this servant king. And here in chapter 53, we're kind of jumping into the middle of a section in which Isaiah is describing this servant king to us. So if you actually just look back a little bit in chapter 52, in verse 13, he was writing about this servant king in very flattering terms. Read with me in verse 13 he says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. But then very quickly notice the tone of this section starts to change. As many were astonished at you, it says, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. So now all of a sudden, Isaiah is describing this servant king being, in effect, basically brutally assaulted in some way to the extent that even he was so marred, it's hard to tell that he was human. And yet in this way, Isaiah says, he shall sprinkle many nations, presumably with his blood. This is a reference to the Old Testament sacrificial system in which priests would often sprinkle the blood of animal sacrifices on the altar in order to cleanse and atone for the sins of the nation of Israel. But apparently, notice, this servant king is going to use his blood to sprinkle, quote, many nations. That is, not just the nation of Israel. And Isaiah explains how strange and unexpected this will all be to so many people. And in our passage today, 53, starting in verse 12, he explains why it's going to be so unintuitive for so many. And here's why it says, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. If you ever planted plants or seeds, you kind of know it's like, it's not really that eventful to watch it grow up. It just kind of happens slowly but surely over time. And he says, he continues, he says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And so, on one hand, uh, this great servant king, Isaiah wrote about or will write about in chapter 61, the one who will eventually come to, to, to reverse all of our bad news of God's chosen people and bring peace forever. And that's the king that we're talking about. And yet, on the other hand, when he comes, most people won't even believe it. If they notice at all, he will not enter this world with a big bang. This king will not enter this world with a loud military parade. That's not the kind of king that he is. He will enter this world like a little unassuming plant. Just kind of sprouts right up out of the ground. Easily missed. And not only will people miss him or misunderstand him, but when he comes, it gets much worse than that. Look with me at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This king will not be honored and glorified when he comes. He will be despised and rejected. He will not be a man of power, acquainted with fame and fortune. He will be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He will not be the kind of guy you want to associate with in order to boost your social status. He will be the kind of king from whom men hide their faces. In in embarrassment, in, in disgust, we will esteem him not. But then listen to the greater spiritual purpose of all this. And in particular, as I read this, listen carefully to who he will come and suffer for. Look with me at verse 4. It says, surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement which basically just means the beating that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed so it is not that this suffering king would come to suffer for no good reason in fact we are the very reason he would come to suffer. He will come and suffer in our place for our transgressions, for our iniquities, so that we will be healed. His beating, his rejection will bring us peace. And in case we didn't quite catch that, uh, Isaiah clarifies and summarizes the servant king's mission again here in verse 6. He says... All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The essence of sin is that is that we have rejected God's ways. We have insisted on our own ways. And this is, according to Isaiah, the spiritual condition that marks our world. It is the spiritual condition that marks everyone in it we have turned everyone to his own way. And notice God's solution to this problem. He has laid on him. That is, he has laid on this suffering servant king the iniquity of us all. Imagine every terrible thing we've ever thought, every terrible thing we've ever done or said. Imagine all of our stubborn sheepness Imagine all of our self-exalting folly, all of our sin, period. In the suffering and rejection of this servant king, God has laid all of it upon his shoulders. So it is not that this servant king would come to suffer by accident It's not even those who reject and despise him are operating somehow outside of God's sovereign will and purpose. Fast forward with me to verses 9 and 10. This is so important. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This was a sinless suffering servant. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, that is, God himself, has put this suffering servant to grief. This is a strange prophecy. This is a strange prophecy. How will this suffering servant go on to reverse our bad news if he's rejected and despised in this way when he enters the world? Uh, That was a great mystery to many who would have read this for many, many years and then... The suffering servant came to show us exactly how it would work. Here, I want you to flip, if you got your finger still in Luke 4, we'll go to Luke chapter 4. Here, we're going to see this despised and rejected child provided to us, provided. Again, for our purposes, we're going to, we're kind of jumping into the middle of this story. And so it's going to be helpful to just refresh where we are. Again, Jesus was attending a worship service at, at, a, at a synagogue in Nazareth. He had just gotten up and read this old prophecy from Isaiah 61 about reversing their bad news, bringing good news to the poor. And then he claimed to be this servant king in no uncertain terms when he stood up and he basically said, today, this is fulfilled. In other words, here here I am. I'm here. I'm the one Isaiah was speaking to. And then he sits down. And at first we see in Luke that, that the Nazareans were actually kind of compelled. They were a bit impressed by what he had to say. If you look at verse 22, it says, they spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. So they were at least amused, right? They were entertained at this idea. Oh, okay, cool. Maybe this is, maybe this is the servant king from Isaiah, right? But then a seed of doubt began to take root in them. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? In other words, don't we know this kid? Uh, didn't he grow up among us? Isn't he basically one of us? And okay, so this is where we're picking up in the story today. That's the, that's the moment we're coming to now. Right as Jesus begins to sense their doubts, here's what happens next. To address their doubts, he says in verse 23, doubtless you will quote me, will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Uh, what we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. In other words, he's saying, hey, I, you know, I bet you guys are a little skeptical, aren't you? Uh, I bet you guys want me to do some magic tricks here to kind of add to my credibility a bit. But then to turn the tables, Jesus cites two fairly obscure Old Testament stories very briefly. And so just let's read these together, and try and get a sense of why he would do this. It's in verse 25 to 27. He says, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah When the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And uh, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So I want you to notice, in both of these cases, first, God is reversing someone's bad news. Uh, he's bringing good news to someone through a prophet, uh, just like Jesus claimed he was here to do from Isaiah 61. And in both of these cases, in both stories, notice, not everyone's bad news is reversed. This, I think, is Jesus' point. God specifically chose in these stories to help certain people. And it seems like Jesus' point here is to say, basically, listen, God is not obligated to reverse your bad news just because you're part of this covenant nation of Israel. That's not how it's worked. He does choose some and not others. He always has. He is a sovereign, electing God. And and so the question that morning was not basically, should you receive me, Jesus, uh, as if he was sort of on, on the hot seat that morning. No, the question was, will you receive me? Because it was ultimately the people of Nazareth that morning who were, if you will, on the hot seat. He just came. He said, I've told you the prophecy is fulfilled in my reading of it. I'm him. I'm here. It's been pointing to me all along. Now it's your turn. He's saying to respond. It is your move. Will you receive me as this servant king that Isaiah foretold, or will you reject me? And their answer is quite clear. If you look with me at verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The members of Jesus' very own community reject him and despise him, even to the extent they want to kill him right then and there. They want to throw him off this cliff. But apparently, this, the sovereign God who's orchestrating all of this says, essentially, no, it's not time, right? We, we don't know why or how this worked. It doesn't really tell us. We're meant to, I, I think, wonder. But somehow, um, he, he went away, it says. He passed through their midst. Now you may have noticed that Luke does not come right out and say here that Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. But we remember, he did just claim to be that servant because the Isaiah 53 servant king and the Isaiah 61 servant king are the same figure, the same servant king. Not to mention, of course, we know how the rest of this story will go. This will not be the last time Jesus is despised. Or rejected. He will keep insisting that he is God's anointed king. He will keep insisting that he is not there to reverse everyone's bad news. He will keep infuriating God's covenant people, especially the elite and powerful among them, until in Luke chapter 2, we read this. I'll read it for us. Chapter 22. It says, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept saying, Prophesy. Who is it that struck you? They said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Then in chapter 23, Jesus stood before a crowd of his Jewish peers with his life on the line. And at first, the Roman governor Pontius Pilate did not want to have him killed. Luke tells us even, in fact, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no guilt deserving of death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed. Church, as as we read that, In in the Gospel of Luke, these ancient words from the prophet Isaiah should be ringing in our ears. They made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And so, what do these passages teach us? Uh, and in particular, what do they reveal, if you will, about the, the meaning of Christmas? I, I think what we see as we consider these two passages is that Jesus was born to be rejected so that we can be accepted, namely, of course, by God his Father. In a sense, he was born to be despised by us. He was born so that the Lord could lay upon him the iniquity of us all. He was born to be beaten and brutalized and even killed so that by his wounds we might be healed. We don't often consider this when we ponder the meaning of Christmas. Um, As you reflect on Christmas and the story of it, you may feel warmth. And you may feel affection in your heart for this sweet little baby boy come down from heaven. But what about the man he grew up to be? What about the teachings that wound wound up placing him on the cross? What about his claims that he made about about our sin and about our need for a savior? Could it be that we, we don't really adore this child as much as we like to think this time of year? Especially not when he grows up and shows up in our synagogue making all kinds of demands on our lives. In our passages today, we can see that some of the people who were closest to Jesus, some of the people who in, in many ways you, may, you might say should have probably received him, wound up despising and rejecting him. But more importantly, we also see, I think, a few examples of why that is sometimes the case. Why might we despise this child who was born at Christmas. This is what I want to consider for the rest of our sermon here today. And I want to share three reasons possibly that we might actually despise this child uh, as we prepare to celebrate his coming. The first reason we might despise him is because he has become familiar to us. He's become familiar. Uh, Maybe you've grown up in a Christian home. You have faithful Christian parents who took you to church every Sunday. and They still go to that same church every Sunday. Um, every year around this time, you're always part of a, of a nice Advent series that touches on a lot of the same themes and even with the same imagery, phrases, songs, even smells. For as long as you can remember, you've been in a small group. Uh, you uh, may uh, have the frequency kind of go up and down, but you've always wanted to have a, a faithful rhythm of Bible reading and prayer. You, you've been a member of, of a church. You've always served on a team. But with all the time and with all the energy that you've invested in Jesus' direction over the years, your walk with Christ and the, and the Christian life in general just feels very familiar to you. Christmas does not feel like the joyous celebration of some heavenly, eternal, all-sufficient king. It feels a little bit more like watching a plant grow up out of the ground. Great. Great. The novelty has worn off. The enthusiasm is gone. And a kind of cynicism has maybe set in. Uh, You you put up with spiritual conversations, but if you're really honest, they kind of just annoy you. And deep down, inside, even though you are a regular, you're always here at this Nazarene synagogue every week in, week out, and yet there is little affection for Christ in your heart in all of our religious devotion could it be that Jesus is so familiar to us that we esteem him not have we forgotten that this child was born to be crushed for us Have we forgotten that his body miraculously knit together in in the womb of Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. That body would later be spit on and whipped and nailed to a cross. That it would be pierced with a spear and laid in a tomb because of our transgressions and our iniquities. Because we like sheep have gone astray, every one of us. Or maybe you really never knew these things. Never really contemplated them. You've probably grown up your whole life decorating a Christmas tree and singing songs about a man who was born, that man no more may die. But it is just now beginning to dawn on you at this point in your life that it was your sin, the rebellion in your heart, that was the very reason he was born, to be brutally rejected and despised in this way. Church, what we see, I think, here is that this child was not just born to be our buddy, He's not just some casual acquaintance like a family friend. He's not just Joseph's son. He's not Joseph's son at all. This is the son of the living God. And he was born to be crushed for us. And so will we prepare him room (laughs) this Christmas? Will we bow before him in adoration? Or will we kind of just roll our eyes dismiss it all and move on? Yeah, I get it. Jesus, Christmas. Okay, come on. Let's get to January. This is the first reason we might despise this child because he's become too familiar to us. Another reason we might despise him is that he's not what we were expecting. Maybe you thought a king would come. Might be great. But you didn't think it was going to look like this. Uh, maybe you signed up for this Christianity thing expecting it to make your life more easy. Uh, maybe you made somewhat of an emotional decision to sort of identify with a fo- as a follower of Jesus along the way Uh, because you really love the idea that he came to reverse our bad news. That sounded great to you. And at first, when he got up to read that prophecy, and he claimed to be your servant king, at first you spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth, only to find later that actually following this Jesus is really, really hard. He has a way of challenging us convicting us, which is never comfortable. And by the way, in my experience, so do some of his people that we follow him with. They don't often affirm and, and appreciate us in the ways we might like them to, not to mention being a follower of this Jesus doesn't often gain us popularity contests in the world. Uh, maybe it's even created a new layer of tension for you in your family or in your workplace, and maybe as these expectations of yours keep getting violated, the truth is more and more you don't really esteem this Jesus quite as much as you thought you might. If following him is this hard, you might think, if it stretches me this much and strains me, my goodness, maybe he's not worth my esteem. Maybe I shouldn't come and adore him. You may be so sick of your unmet spiritual expectations, you're ready to throw him off a cliff this Sunday. Just give up on this whole project altogether. Church, when Jesus violates our expectations and and when we're disappointed in the Christian life, which is understandable, uh, rather than counting the iniquities of the church, for example, or counting the many costs that everyone who follows Jesus has to pay, instead it helps, I think, to count our iniquities, and to remember that Christ was born to bear them all. If our Christianity is more about our sort of superficial religious goals in life, like proving ourselves to our loved ones or gaining some kind of cultural power, whatever it may be, if it's about those things, then before long the varnish of our religion will wear off and our true colors will come through. We will grow bitter. We will grow cynical, Uh, we will only see the burdens of following this Jesus and never the joys, and more importantly, we will lack faith in Christ for today, and we will lack hope in Christ for the future, because the the things we were expecting from Jesus are not quite the same things he came to give us, at least not here and not now, and the more this proves to be true, the more we will want to just throw him off the cliff. On the other hand, if at the very center of our Christian identity is this message, this message that we like sheep have gone astray, every one of us has turned to his own way, and yet Christ, this servant king, even when he had every right to be hostile towards us, Even when he had every right to despise and reject us, even then he came down to be despised and rejected by us so that we could be accepted by his father. If that truth right there is at the very center of our spiritual lives, it will guard us against all religious cynicism. And pride and self-righteousness it will keep us humble and dependent and hope filled because we will see our sin through the lens of his suffering and his rejection but if this gospel is not the center of our spiritual life if if we build our Christianity on some other foundation then following Jesus will constantly violate our expectations until eventually we just despise and reject him altogether one day we'll hear the wrong sermon, somebody will say something, it will fill us with wrath, and we'll just hit eject on this whole thing. We'll go deconstruct our faith on YouTube and apologize for being Christians like so many are. Because we weren't expecting a Messiah who suffers and a Messiah who calls us to suffer with him, but this is precisely the problem. This is exactly the Messiah whom God has told us would come. Maybe at this point, you're feeling a bit discouraged because you're realizing you don't maybe adore this Jesus as much as you like to think this time of year. You can relate. Hang in there. Uh, There's one more reason we may despise him, and it might be pleasantly surprising to you. The final reason we despise and reject this Jesus in this way is because God knew that we would. God knew that we would. And it was always part of his plan to redeem us. Here, I, I just want to talk about this profound truth that Christ's suffering and rejection by us was not an accident that God allowed. It was the very pinnacle of his plan to redeem us. He had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. Church, this plainly is the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement right there in your Old Testament. Penal simply means as a penalty for sin. Jesus substituted himself in our place to atone for our sins. He didn't just die for sins. In theory, He died for the specific sins of specific people. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. This is precisely what he nailed to his cross. And so listen, this is such great news this Christmas. As heinous as it is that we would despise this child, as evil as it is that we would reject him, as horrific as it is that we mocked him and we beat him and we killed him in all of these things, God was working to redeem us. It was our sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And yet his dying breath has brought us life. I know that it is finished. What, what we as, as, as mankind intended for evil and, and not just evil, but the greatest of all evils, God has used for our ultimate good. Can you imagine You will never find a better God. We will never find a better God than this despised and rejected child, this servant king. So if you're here today and you are weighed down by guilt because you have never really loved and adored this child in the way that you should, there is really only one response to that. It is for us to repent of our hatred of him, is to repent of our turning to our own ways, to humbly receive the grace that he suffered and died to give us. This is why Christ was born, to be despised and to be rejected so that we could be accepted by his Father.